welcome to the podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. We are doing part two of the history and impact of diet culture today. And aren't you excited? Yeah, this was a... There was no way we were going to fit this into one episode, so had to scatter it across two. Today's going to be a little more on like the impact. We wanted to make part one the actual history, and part two, we wanted to kind of show how this has unfolded and affected us all. Yeah, 100%. So a little more on the sciencey side or like data side today and just the impact of a lot of the history that we went over in episode one of this. Definitely suggest listening to that first. And of course, we have to start with us just shilling ourselves. If you want to support the show, the best way you can do so is by looking into online coaching, which is the main thing that we do at Five Elements Coaching. So whether you want to build confidence in the gym, get stronger, maybe even have some composition goals, you're going to know we're not going to be advocating for unsustainable diets or crash diets along those lines. But if you need that support and that guidance, apply for online coaching, which you can the link in the description. We can set up a free call and see if we're the right fit for you. Secondly, you can sign up for our free newsletter. The best way to stay in touch with our content is through our newsletter, which we send out every Friday, and it's either going to be fitness-based, mindset-based, etc. And then the last way is you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it, leave a review if that's possible, and then share it with any friends because that's the best way we'll grow. So I guess we have to do some roses and some thorns. Let's do it. You're going first, though. Why am I always going first? It makes me happy. <sighs> Sam might have edited that out, but I just had a big sigh. <laughs> so if you didn't hear a sigh, just know that Sam basically is not an advocate of free speech. If you knew how many <laughs> sighs, clicks, because Dylan has to go before he says a sentence, ums, buts, and likes were in every episode. So my rose is we recently went to the cottage. That was mine. <laughs> that no. Suckers okay. go second, and that's you signed up for that. Fine. So we went to the cottage, and it was so dope. We were out in the woods. <laughs> we took the dog. The dog just had the best time, jumped into the lake. It was a blast. And it brought me a level of peace that I hadn't had in a long time. Yeah. Mostly because I don't spend much time outdoors in the woods. My biggest experiences as a kid outdoors in the woods were like going camping, which were fun, but they weren't really like outdoorsy. It was just like in Grand Bend, which if you're not from Canada, it's just like a small old beach town. So you just camp and then go to the beach. And that's pretty much it. There's not really an- Camp in a tent? Camp in a tent wake okay. up and then go to the beach. So I'm not too exposed to like the deep outdoors, going through like big national parks mm -hmm. and being on the lake. It was awesome. So that was really peaceful. And that was a big rose. I felt a level of calmness I haven't felt in a long time. And you know, nature will do that apparently. It really does. And he was a different person while we were there. <laughs> like the moment we got up north, he just took one big deep breath and was like, I'm human again. Yo, there's a hum to the city. There's a hum. There's just like an energy. I hate I hate living here but like, so much. If you're into that energy, it's electric. Yeah. But once you're not, it's like, dude, there's just humming in my ear Soul all the time. Soul crushing. Like the one day I went out to sit on the balcony mm -hmm. to just, I was like, I'll sit outside, get some fresh air. Oh, yeah. And it's just jackhammers and like noise pollution. We are surrounded by four construction sites. Oh and a highway and we live in a tourist destination and sam's an introvert <laughs> it's not going well which means that you actually took both my rose and my thorn but we'll we'll talk sucks to suck that's all i have to say well what's your thorn my thorn 
is that I've currently been less busy over the last little while. And that has created some existential crises on my part because I realized how much of my self-worth is wrapped up in just being busy Mm -hmm. or my self-identity in a lot of ways. So it's on the mend. It's getting a little better. Trying to be (laughs) peaceful, trying to be more relaxed and calm and be okay with it. But yeah, I, for a while, I was basically doing full-time personal training. So like 30 plus sessions a week, which is a full-time job. Yeah. And then on top of that, our online coaching clients and content creation, like I was out of my mind busy. And And then would look at me and go, why aren't you doing more? And it's (laughs) like, (laughs) excuse me, sir. Yo, I was staying toxic. You were, yeah. I was, yeah. He was on another level. I wasn't proud of it. slowly killing himself in the process. Oh, like hardcore. Miserable. Depressed. I was carrying on the generational, like the the pastime of men being depressed Mm -hmm. and doing nothing about it and doubling down on the behaviors that have led to our depression. I love that. So you just work, 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 and then you go, I'm burnt out. I won't change, but I'm just going to keep doing this and then being like, why am I so unfulfilled no No self-love no self-care so that's been a work in progress yeah but the thorn is as i have had more time i realized i was like freaking out on like a visceral level of like oh my god so much of my identity is just wrapped up in even if i'm not doing anything but i'm like under the illusion that i'm doing something yes god like that would soothe my brain's desire to always be busy because busyness equals productivity and productivity equals worth when that wasn't always the case and obviously is not for any person but i internalized that message real hard and I'm working through that and that is my thorn. What about you, Bubba? My rose, the cottage weekend was actually so much fun and so peaceful. (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) It was wonderful and rejuvenating on every level to get away from the city. I forgot the feeling of being alive because all we do is like work and do all the adult shit and it was nice to sort of just slow down and enjoy the fruits of our labor and enjoy time together, our relationship, being in nature, being with Frankie. We had the best time on our hike honestly this dog was off leash and she led us the whole way like she guided the hike she knew the path without seeing all the little markers on the trees like she just she was electric man she was dude she was the star of the trip like it was such a good day yeah the truth is though that hike kicked the shit out of both of us oh yeah and frankie (laughs) we were exhausted we don't got that juice anymore when i picked a hike we decided to go to algonquin and And I thought, four hour hike, that sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) Not realizing that I've not hiked in a while. It's been a minute. I used to be younger. You also used to live in British Columbia. Yeah, so I hiked a lot more often. I don't know. It was also really nice to just enjoy our anniversary. Three years. And to like acknowledge the growth that we've both experienced in our relationship. That's a thousand days. A thousand days with you, my dear. (sighs) And my thorn that Dylan already robbed for me, lol, is being up north and being at the cottage made me realize the degree of peace that we are lacking in our current life. True. It was the ultimate in juxtaposition. It was kind of devastating when we came home because I always make the joke like I haven't heard a bird chirp in a year and a half. And you know, when we woke up in Muskoka, I just heard birds chirping and like the peace of the lake. And when we were on our hike, there was a point where Frankie froze. She actually stopped moving, which never happens. And the two of us paused and there was an 
no one around us. We were in the middle of the woods and you could hear a pin drop. At night, because there was no light pollution, we could actually see the stars. I resent one thing you said. What? How dare you say you haven't heard a bird chirp? We have an alarm clock see, that has a thing. bird chirping setting. Anyway, And it's so authentic that our cat walks up to it and thinks there's a bird around there. It's not the same. <laughs> I wake up to the sounds of jackhammers and drills and noisy giant trucks and concrete being poured and me on a daily cups around. basis. Anyways, this made me realize that our life lacks peace in a really big way. And perhaps that means that I am finally at the point of feeling fatigued by living downtown and like the crazy go, go, go energy that is Toronto. In a different phase of my life, like when I was younger, that felt more exciting. It doesn't feel exciting anymore. It just feels draining. The go, go, go-ness, the constant chaos, the being busy all the time, capitalism, and doing all of this with... A disability. Mm -hmm. So given my neurodivergence, given the fact I briefly mentioned on the last pod that I have autism, one of the things that is shown to be very helpful and very impactful for autistic folks is our environment. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, I'm at the point where I finally realize that my environment is not conducive to me feeling like my happiest, most energetic and most peaceful self. Sam's introduced me to understanding autism on a level I didn't know before. One of the big things is like sensory information or like mm -hmm. sensory processing. <laughs> and downtown sensory is, overload. is sensory overload all the time. Constantly. <laughs> like the other day I walked around with my noise canceling headphones in, but yeah. didn't listen to anything. Mm -hmm. It was so, it was like tranquil. Yeah. And for me, it, it's not like one form of sensory input is what breaks the camel's back. It's honestly the accumulation mm -hmm. of all of them. It's that every time I go outside, it is both bright and loud and noisy and busy. And there are people everywhere and people typically don't respect my space because I'm a small human. That's true. Um, I've seen this happen. Actually. I know people literally walk. <laughs> To, like so close to me that I can smell their breath and I don't understand why I can feel you breathing on me. Everybody asks you for directions too. I've witnessed this. I, I don't understand why. You're I think it's because I appear non-threatening. You're just small and cutesy and like little and like welcoming. I don't mean to be. I walk around with the... <laughs> meanest look on my face and I still get stopped like five times a walk. People Ugh. feel like it's safe to just, hey, how are you? Ugh. Anyways, I'm over it. I'm <laughs> over living downtown. I'm over this beautiful life, but challenging one in its own right. And I'm also terrified for the day that I should have children because I think it actually might kill me. So I'm excited for part two because, you know, over the past few years, given COVID and the state of the world that it kind of left us all in, we've spent a lot more time on social media. We had a lot more time to be alone with our thoughts, to feel isolated from other people. And in many ways, I feel like that sets the scene for diet culture to get a little bit louder. Yeah. To reach people a little bit more effectively because when everything feels out of control, it's very easy to find 
and seek control by way of finding and seeking control over your body. A hundred percent. You know, we'll get into the research, but I've definitely noticed a trend in that research over the past few years. Linked to COVID, frankly, like Hmm. definitely been a negative impact that kind of trickled down from the isolation, from the amount of time we're spending on social media, body trends. There are so many competing factors, but I do think that the prevalence of diet culture is still, even given body positivity and all the wonderful movements that are anti-diet culture, it is still prevalent. Those things you just mentioned are still counterculture. I mean, I see them more commonly spoken yeah, about and I sure. see them on social media. They're around and they're talked about and, you know, historically they might not have been as loudly discussed, but in the same vein, diet culture is raging. Another thing that might have contributed to this, and this is all speculation, on my part was during the pandemic there was two things that became pretty safe to say out loud even though they were kind of low-key hateful ableism was one of them oh don't worry it's just those folks dying old people, disabled people, sick people, people with comorbidities. But one of those was obesity. For sure. And it became pretty much safe to say, oh, it's just fat people who are dying. And you know what? That's their fault because they're fat and they don't don't want to put the fork down. They don't want to exercise. And it was a huge talking point. It was also a gross thing that some fitness people marketed as like, you know, obesity increases your rate of COVID dying by blank? Yeah. By our services. That might have impacted how people see like, oh my God, I I have to lose weight because if I have this amount of much of body fat and I get COVID, I'm dead. And it's like... People actually marketed fitness programs and diet plans and crap like that based on knowing that people were feeling extra Mm self-conscious because we were in lockdown because people gained weight. So people preyed on the vulnerability and insecurity of others in the middle of a global pandemic. Yeah. That was actually in the research. Yeah, no, that was, it's really commonplace to do that in the fitness industry. The easiest way to market your services is is through things like that, which Mm -hmm. I don't really vibe with. It's why we don't really do a lot of before and after shots and sell that kind of shit because it's just, you can say it's innocent marketing, but what you really are is you are preying on people's desire to be lean and fit into this cultural norm of Mm -hmm. beauty standards and I don't know, I don't shame anyone for wanting to lose body fat, but when you're using, especially pandemics, like yeah. as a way of like, do you know, obesity cause is like, I don't know, it just doesn't vibe with me well, to be honest. No, it's inherently exploitative. Yeah. So the impact that diet culture has had on all of us is going to be unique to the parents we grew up with. Frankly, yeah. what was role modeled for us as kids, our connection to our bodies, the way that you identify in the world and the social expectations that are placed upon you, your personal psychology, Mm -hmm. your connection to yourself in a big way. Like we all kind of have our own inner narrative and that's been shaped and formed by a million things. But when we strive to fit in, when we strive to be the social norm or standard, often that leads us down the diet culture rabbit hole. Because that still is like what would be called like the hegemony of like beauty standards right now like that's the cultural dominant ideal is to fit these standards so yeah we're gonna talk about a couple topics and we're gonna take turns kind of like leading which topic we're gonna be talking about Mm -hmm. we'll touch on some research and go from there first 
we're going to talk about kind of like childhood development and like childhood exposure to this. Mm -hmm. And this is very important to me because I was exposed to this at a very young age. Yeah. And I probably was classified as obese by the BMI category, which is a problematic one. And I really struggled with my weight. And these things definitely really impacted me. And I mentioned this in the last podcast too. Like I grew up with two parents, one who was obese and one who struggled with her weight. And the discussion in my home surrounding weight and size and body bodies was apparent from the time I was a small child. It manifests in such little ways that we don't even realize, but I can't tell you the number of times that we would be getting ready to go out somewhere. And my mom would look at herself in the mirror and say something along the lines of, I'm too fat to wear clothes. Nothing looks good on me. Nothing fits me. And that stuff molds and shapes a growing mind in a Mm -hmm. really, really big way. Also, the people around you and their behaviors around food is a big one. 100%. The role modeling of how to eat, how much to eat, how comfortable and confident and calm people feel around food will definitely have an impact on a growing mind. Yeah, 100%. I'm going to talk about a couple studies. The first one I'm going to talk about was called Family Weight Talk and Dieting. How much do they matter for body dissatisfaction and disordered eating behaviors in adolescent girls? And this was by Newmark, Stainer, et al. in 2010. Basically, 350 50-ish high school girls in Minnesota by diverse backgrounds. Most of the subjects were black. Um, And I bring this up because we talked about race in the last podcast. So we're going to try to find some research that was a little bit more diverse and not just kind of on like middle-class white folks. Yeah. They ran interviews to see if family weight talk from parents impacted their body image and urge to diet. Now, nearly half of mothers encouraged them to diet to some degree. About 37% of fathers did as well. Mothers encouraging them to diet strongly associated with unhealthy and extreme weight control behaviors slash binge eating. Example, 25% of girls who were encouraged very much used extreme weight control behaviors compared to only 5% of girls who weren't encouraged to diet did. Similarly, 22% of girls whose fathers talked to them about his own weight very much showed extreme weight control behaviors compared to girls whose fathers didn't talk about their weight. In general, mothers talking about their weight and dieting was associated with worse outcomes than when fathers did. Another one that's of relevance is by the same research group and it was around like 4,700 students or adolescents in Minnesota and they reported greater incidence of binge eating in overweight youth subjects, 29% of girls and 18% of boys, when they were teased about their weight compared to overweight youths who were not teased. And that was about 16% for girls and 7% for boys. So these things are starting to really impact behaviors, even at a really young age. Mm -hmm. And this is two cohorts. You got parents talking about it, Mm -hmm. impacting it, and then you got other students talking about it. So this is in your home and then on the playground or at school as well. A couple other ones were teasing disordered eating behaviors and psychological uh, morbidities among overweight adolescents by Libby et al. So this is where 130 students, also in Minnesota, aged 12 to 20 with 65% female and a diverse crowd, so 58% white, and then the rest was not white. That would include black, brown, indigenous, etc. Frequency of teasing was associated with disordered eating thoughts, more eating in secret, more periods of feeling out of control when eating, a higher value for thinness, a higher depression rates, and anger and anxiety with lower self-esteem. So in that context, the frequency of being teased for your weight was associated with a lot of really negative eating behaviors. And this was a pretty wide range of like 12-year-olds to 20-year-olds. So it's Mm -hmm. not just kids here. And then the last one I want to talk about to kind of reel this all in was a paper called Body Dissatisfaction and Dieting in Young Children. This one was really sad to me, actually. This was by Schur and colleagues in 2000. 62 
kids aged 8 to 13, and this was a mostly white middle class cohort, so about 90%, 50% of these kids wanted to lose weight, or reported that they wanted to lose weight. The interesting thing was that 48% of boys and 51% of girls reported this, so there wasn't really a meaningful difference between boys and girls. 51% of girls wanted to look thinner, quote, while 38% of boys did. So again, this is this was a difference between the groups, but not a huge one. 16% of subjects tried to lose weight, which is really sad because these kids were very young, eight, 8 to 13, I'll remind you. Changing food choices and exercises and pursuing exercise were two major themes in the interviews, but an alarming 8% said that using diet pills was a means of weight loss. Parents and mothers in particular were, were the most common theme for learning about dieting, from the importance of needing to lose weight being talked about to hearing about a parent who's actively on a diet. Secondly, media was the next largest theme and advertisements made more of an impact than TV shows in particular. Mm -hmm. So one thing I want to touch in there is like there's a big thing of parents and in particular mothers. Mm -hmm. And this is why the history of diet culture is super important because if you were to look at that data and not know anything about the history, you could just be like, fucking moms, what's wrong with them? But women in particular got a huge part of the very traumatizing and like generationally traumatizing aspects of diet culture throughout the years. Because again, patriarchy was definitely aligned with it and women were told they had to look a certain way to have any value they couldn't really join the workforce a long time ago so being this prized looking woman and meeting these beauty standards was one of the ways that they could kind of establish some sense of value and we never truly as a society worked through this because diet culture is still so prevalent mm -hmm. and this can get passed down quite a bit through the generations and sam's example right there i don't think sharon knew what she was doing no right but that gets in your head as a young kid and that's really common and, and fathers are not off the hook here too like pretty much any parent talking about it can make an impact mm -hmm. but there's a legacy of like women feeling like they have to fit these beauty standards in order mm -hmm. to have value and that can get passed down from generation to generation and some of this data points it out but regardless body dissatisfaction teasing and like talking about weight from role models generally has a negative impact on kids desires for weight loss value of thinness, disordered eating patterns, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, which is really scary. Well, there's a huge difference also in what you're saying um, by way of covert and overt examples via parenting. Yeah. So like a more covert example is the one that I gave where my mom was not commenting on my weight. She was commenting on her own. Yeah. But in her commenting on her own, it made me think about mine. Overt is more along the lines of, I've actually had a few clients say this, where when they were little girls, their mothers would weigh them and they would be given a treat or a reward if the number on the scale was whatever the mother wanted, usually yeah. trending downward. I'm also thinking that a major point of difference from, you know, when we were growing up in the 90s compared to now is that children grow up with the internet these days. Yeah. We were like 12 years old with dial up. You know what I mean? They're on an iPad before they can speak. So historically, if you or I wanted to go on a diet, that would have looked very differently. I could have taken a diet book that my mom bought or asked her to take me to go buy one or read a magazine perhaps to get an idea. But now kids can literally go on the internet and Google how to diet and yeah. they can find out 
everything. They can mm-hmm. have a whole plan at their fingertips and that's not even pointing to whether it's a good one or a bad one or a harmful one. But they have so much more access to information than we had. And they also have way more accessibility to social media, which kind of is gasoline on a bullying fire because mm-hmm. if kids are teasing each other about weight in person, I can only imagine how much worse that is online. Yeah. Well, I, my most viral TikTok video was about me talking about my first diet at age 13. And I think I got like 50,000 views. I was like, it was blowing up. And I was like, holy shit. And the comment section was all young kids. I wasn't even responding. I was like, this is weird. But it was just kids being like, hey, I'm 12 and I'm on my first diet. I'm 15. How do I lose weight? I'm 13. I just lost 30 pounds. How do I keep it off? And I remember being like, dude, this is horrible. The video was me saying like, these are things I learned at age 13. (laughs) And what am I doing now? Actively trying to unlearn all of these horrible messages that I got because my weight loss was celebrated at a young age. But just to see the amount of comments from young children on that post talking about their current pursuit to lose weight, it made me sad. And the last thing I'll say there is in one of those papers that I mentioned, kids talking about exercise being a means for weight loss, Mm -hmm. you might hear, yeah, that's normal. But the thing to remember there is that at a young young age, kids are already associating exercise as a means for weight loss, which means they're not at the focal point of exercise, seeing it as a means to be healthy, to be strong, to stay active, to form community through sport and recreation. They're going to be the folks who are at 30 are like, how do I exercise without being only obsessed with how I look? See, and that's major point of difference for me because I didn't diet when I was a kid like you did, right? Like Dylan had already dieted by 13. I had not. I had used diet pills. Oh, Oh my god yeah no i had not but i was intaking these constant messages via you know my school friends like my peers Mm -hmm. my family in either scenario dylan and i both received the message that we needed to be like everyone else by way of living not inside our bodies but on the outside as observers and when you intake that perspective you end up doing things like working out to look a certain way rather than to feel a certain way right which is exactly what i did when i lost yeah it was i was googling like what exercises burn the most calories i was like 14 that's not okay i can remember when i was a kid i had no concept of being on the outside looking in Mm -hmm. i was only on the inside looking out and then I remember when that lens shifted which I mentioned on the last pod but it's amazing that like all of these young young children are having that same experience where they're learning to sort of become observers rather than the one having the experience which is just they're way too young and it is so detrimental and it's amazing because in all the people we coach in ourselves like it sticks with you for a lifetime it is something that you have to consciously work at undoing the damage of mm-hmm. so harmful how i'll sum that up is like we coach people who are trying to lose weight sometimes yeah we coach people who aren't but if you have kids i would suggest not talking about it too much around kids or really at all like we've had clients who one of sam's clients said my kid brought up they want to lose weight and how old were they like they were six six years old so these things are probably not appropriate to discuss with young children because even if they seem innocent they can really get in and send these covert messages crap this also happens because of teachers teachers will talk to other teachers about their dieting pursuits in front of children and so it's like all the role models in a child's life make a huge impact Mm -hmm. and as a parent it's important to sort of role model 
the behavior that you wish had been role modeled for you for your kids so that they don't end up 40 years old still on a diet or let's say my mother 75 and still on a diet still hating her body I guess this segues right into the prevalence of eating disorders, which, wow, has it increased. I definitely am not surprised, frankly, given the state of the world the past few years. So when you think about life losing control, we seek control in whatever means we can. So of course, it makes sense that perhaps people who are more inclined would take that control out on their bodies. Mm -hmm. Between that, isolation, lack of access to support by way of inpatient treatment or seeing a site, the increased amount of time spent on social media, and the struggles of living through a pandemic, frankly. Mental health was not an easy thing to take care of while the world kind of felt really upside down. Mm -hmm. So clinicians noticed right at the start of the pandemic that there was already an instance of of deteriorating symptoms due to increased isolation and there was an increase in hospitalizations. There was a systematic review that included 36,485 individuals with eating disorders and 36% of those studies in that review documented increases in eating disorder symptoms during the pandemic. There was a large increase in hospitalizations. There was a decrease in access to care exacerbated because of the state of the world. And that of course had a very negative impact on symptomology. And because of changes to routine, loss of structure, the negative influence of social media and the increase in social isolation, eating disorders were literally fueled by the pandemic in a big way. There's also data from the Canadian Institute for Health that reported hospitalizations for young women with eating disorders aged 10 to 17 increased by nearly 60% since March 2020, Damn, which is wild. And one thing that was interesting about the CIHI, they wrote that youth living in less affluent neighborhoods had higher rates of eating disorder visits and hospitalizations for mental health disorders than their peers from more affluent neighborhoods. However, the opposite trend was observed for youth receiving hospital care for eating disorders with youth from the most affluent neighborhoods hospitalized more than twice as much as their least affluent peers. So there is sort of like a social interplay here. You know, we mentioned last pod that there's kind of like a trope that I've seen floating around that eating disorders pertain only to wealthy, privileged white women. Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely not the case. Yeah. Not on any, any level. Over the course of the pandemic, the National Eating Disorder Association Helpline reported a 40% increase in call volume. Damn. So I really appreciated this one quote. This young woman named Anne described the unique pressures that young adults and adolescents faced on social media because there was a general discourse about not gaining weight during the pandemic or focusing on getting fit during COVID because we needed to find a way to make that time productive, right? So many people were equating self-improvement with weight loss or changing their eating habits. And that had such a negative impact and just also kind of worked like throwing gasoline on the fire, especially 
especially for the people who were more vulnerable. Disruptions to daily activities and routines definitely had an impact. If you went from living a pretty active life, you walked to work, you worked out at the gym that was by your work, and then you walked home, suddenly it's just you and a few resistance bands in your living room and you're being told that you can go outside for 30 minutes a day only with your dog if they really have to go. Wow. Of course, that's going to have an impact on the way people feel about themselves. This is not just to say that the negative impact was on weight. The negative impact was also on our minds, right? In a very, very big way. Of course, another thing that impacted the increase in eating disorder rates was less social support and therefore people came up with adaptive coping strategies, which makes perfect sense because we didn't have our people to turn to. We didn't have any social outlet. We didn't have a lot of people use the gym as a social outlet or they use workout classes as a social outlet or a means of social support. Mm -hmm. And we lost a lot in those dark times of isolation. There was also an increased exposure to anxiety provoking media. The news cycle and social media were just full of one catastrophic incident after another, which is going to increase the anxiety or neuroses or discomfort of the individual, which could also propel eating disorders. One thing I thought was really interesting was the increased reliance on video conferencing was noted as one of the things that contributed to the increase in eating disorder rates because people were seeing themselves a lot. We went from being in person, talking to people face to face where there usually isn't a mirror behind them to seeing ourselves on video constantly on FaceTime on Zoom like everything became a video conference moment which means you know often you're not staring at the person you're communicating with you're actually just looking at yourself and seeing yourself reflected back to you so often can make one quite self-conscious one thing that I find funny there is I was like what are you talking about isn't it normal to see yourself all day no we work at gyms we have mirrors around us used to seeing myself all the time seeing yourself all the time is not a good thing like truly I hate mirrors at the gyms like I understand their utility but as an employee or someone who works at gyms being exposed to how you look all day is in especially in this current culture and then the fact that you're in a gym which is almost selection bias of like people showing off their bodies and Mm -hmm. like an increased pursuit and value of certain bodies like it's just not great to be able to see yourself all day no it's not I don't think it's healthy for our minds on any level to have that much exposure. And the truth is, no one likes how they look on video. So I'm sure that that became a very easy way for people to pick themselves apart. And the last one that I thought was so interesting was because of the narrative that COVID is more prevalent in people with higher body fat percentages, a lot of people went on very restrictive diets due to health anxiety. Mm -hmm. Or the severity of COVID was... Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there was a lot of anxiety provoking media being floated around, mm-hmm. and that definitely had an impact on people. This depresses me on every level because the other point to note in here is that the people who are being exposed to eating disorders and disordered eating are getting younger and younger. Kind of, you know, piggybacking off the research you mentioned, small children are now thinking about their bodies in a way that I don't even think I knew about. The research 
sister I was mentioning was old. It yeah. ranged from year 2000 to like 2012. I don't even know what it's like now. I assume it's worse. Worse. For sure worse. Which actually brings us nicely over to social media. The bane of my existence. Social media is an interesting little nightmare. <sighs> you know, in our last pod, I talked about how I grew up with magazines. And mm-hmm. worst case was Tumblr. I would just scroll images on Tumblr. We all did. And... They were often images of beautiful women, of Victoria's Secret models, models in general, just the beautiful elite on our planet. And now we have all of that in our pockets all the time, every day, with Mm -hmm. easy, frictionless access to. And thus, I have to believe on some level that that's having an impact on our body image issues. Mm -hmm. Turns out, it definitely is. So this first study was so interesting because it was trying to explain the link between the intensity of social media use and body image outcomes in young adult women from the United States. The results broadly supported the internalization of appearance ideals and social comparison were significant mediators of the relationship between intensity of social media use and body image outcomes. However, the direct link between the intensity of social media use and body image was more equivocal. The overall findings suggest possible pathways through which intensity of social media use may influence body image outcomes in young adult women. It's not surprising, but the truth is, at least back in the day when I'm when I think about it more critically, I was comparing myself to celebrities, the elite of the elite on the planet, gorgeous people who were privileged and had tons of resources. And thus, I don't know that that was quite as harmful in a way, because now when we compare on social media, we're often comparing to people who aren't that far off from ourselves. They're accessible. They're accessible. You can slide in their DMs. Like Sometimes they'll respond, even the famous people. They might be. They might be your age. Mm -hmm. They might be within your age bracket. They might have a life that looks very similar to your own. And yet, you know, privilege is a factor in all the things. Mm -hmm. And I think that we just have a lot more access by way of comparison these days than we used to. So that definitely is having an impact. And I see it in the, the comparison trap that we all fall into on social media, where at first it feels good, but then after a while you're like, oh wait, I've been scrolling social for an hour. I've seen 1,000 pictures of women in bikinis or lingerie, and I'm noticing that I'm starting to feel kind of bad about myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder why. Another study that was interesting was social media use and body image disorders. So the association between frequency of comparing one's own physical appearance to that of people being followed on social media and body dissatisfaction and the drive for thinness, which included 1,138 subjects who were all women aged 15 to 35 in France who use social media daily. And they filled out a few questionnaires on body satisfaction, their drive for thinness, and their social media use. Compared to those who never compared their physical appearance to those that they follow on social media, the ones who did scored about five points higher on average on the drive for thinness assessment, and those who always did scored eight points higher on average than those who didn't. One test used was the scoff, which was just a simple five questionnaire 
that has been validated to be an effective eating disorder screening tool. And about 71% of all subjects were positive, which means they might be at risk or already currently do suffer from an eating disorder. One note to mention is that there might be a little bit of bias in there because the subjects for this study were recruited at gyms and thus people in that population typically do have a little bit of a higher sense of focus on body image than the average. Another interesting study was the effects of the ideal of female beauty on mood and body satisfaction. 118 female college students, so 65% were white, 35 were more diverse. They did three questionnaires for body satisfaction, mood state, and eating disorders, and then they were split into a control group and an intervention group. The intervention group was exposed to slides, which included 20 images of fashion models from popular magazines, and the control group actually saw images with no humans on them, and then they both went off and redid the questionnaires. The women who were exposed to the images of models showed immediately higher levels of anger and hostility and higher levels of depression. Wow. That's interesting based based off what you just mentioned of like, I was scrolling and I saw a thousand images. And mm-hmm. this is... This is the devil of social media because it can be so positive and it can be curated in a way that can be nurturing. But left up to its own devices, these algorithms are going to send you things that are hyper stimulating, even if sensationalized. Yeah. And there is evidence. And obviously, this is 118 women. So it's not a massive sample size. Mm -hmm. But this is evidence of 20 images of the idealized beauty standard having an immediate impact on women. Mm -hmm. You can't scroll. Like, these are just pictures. Mm -hmm. Imagine seeing a thousand. I know. How many can you see in an hour of scrolling? It's in the hundreds. And you can do it daily. This is one of the potential downsides if you do not curate your feed to to nurture you and instead prey on you. A hundred percent. And this last study is actually interesting from both that perspective and it kind of relates to the studies on, you know, role modeling in children too, Mm -hmm. because this study was done on 1100 Korean college students who were surveyed and media influence was actually shown to be the largest driver for body dissatisfaction across genders. Mm -hmm. So media influence had a smaller but significant impact on the drive for thinness and muscularity in men. And peer influence also impacted the drive of muscularity, which is interesting because I have been seeing a metric ton about um, body dysmorphia in men and how that pertains specifically to leanness, but also muscularity. There Mm -hmm. have been like articles being pushed to me through Apple News, which is so interesting that it's really fully hit the mainstream which means that it's been going on for a lot longer. And for women, media influence was actually the biggest driver for body dissatisfaction. No shock there. Yeah, that was like, there were central themes when we were talking about this, and it was like role modeling and family talk Mm -hmm. and media influence tend to be the two. And all that really is is, internal and external influences like in your home in your local environment and then in the external environment through pop culture through the media through news it's really interesting to sort of see this all compiled out in front of me because in the last pod we were talking about body trends a little bit yeah we talked about how every 10 years it seems that in the past it was about a decade at a time where body trends would change and evolve and flip. Mm -hmm. And now, obviously, because of social media, they evolve a lot quicker. I would say on top of social media, like global connectedness 
things aren't just local to your current community. You can be like, we talked about research from Korea. We talked about research from America, from Canada, like all these things. You can pick up on Korean trends online before you couldn't really do that. So one of the more recent body trends was the slim thick look, which was popularized by the Kardashians. And that's banned far and wide globally, yeah. which is really interesting because historically they kind of pertain to North America. And yes, body trends are totally different across the world and depending on what culture you're in. But it's wild to see the way that social media can kind of bridge the gap yeah. by way of just spreading it like fire. So one of the things that I wanted to dig into a little bit was actually contingent on body trends because I realized that given the slim thick trend, a lot of women were pursuing cosmetic procedures. I never found that cosmetic procedures were like that common. Like a lot of women had breast augmentations and uh, some noses, but it wasn't very common for young women to like do liposuction or to do something as invasive as a Brazilian butt lift or to do fat transfer to get rid of their hip dips. These were all new things that kind of have unfolded over the past five years, 10 years-ish. Mm -hmm. And the reality is in the past five years, what have we been doing? We've been spending more time on social media. With COVID, we've been seeing ourselves reflected back at us by way of video conferencing and FaceTime. So I think that we're just a little bit more invested in a way in our appearance because we're seeing it reflected back at us more than we ever have been. Yeah. Um, even when it, some of those studies on uh, eating disorders, a lot of them were actually referencing the number of selfies that kids take in a day and that being a component on the increased drive to undergo cosmetic procedures and lose weight. So I found that really interesting. And basically, when I started digging into this, I found out that cosmetic surgical procedures have been on the rise in the US over the past five years in a really, really big way. Surgical procedures increased 54% and non-surgical, so more of like the lighter cosmetic stuff, increased by 44%. The average plastic surgeon performed 320 surgical procedures in 2021 compared to 220 in 2020. Damn. So a really interesting stat, which isn't even that recent, but almost 18 million people underwent surgical and minimally invasive cosmetic procedures in the US in 2018, which means that there was actually a quarter of a million more procedures in 2018 than there were in 2017. Damn. So it's just been steadily increasing over the years. And when I first started digging into this research, the first thing I did was look at Dylan and ask, what do you think the most common surgery is? I thought it was fake breasts. Right? And turns out it's actually liposuction. I would not have guessed that. There's actually been, <laughs> this is interesting. There's been a 30% growth rate in the number of labiaplasty procedures, like, yeah. which is wild. And that definitely has to do with media consumption online and mm -hmm. frankly porn. But yeah, the number of liposuction procedures in 2021 in the United States was 5,000 or 4.9K. The country with the highest number of cosmetic surgical procedures 
worldwide was the United States. And the one that came in second was actually Brazil, which I find <laughs> very, very interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. So basically, after learning about the different cosmetic procedures that have like increased and risen over the past few years, I wanted to figure out the why. What can we actually link it to? So when I went to the research, what I found was that self-concept and self-esteem were very important. Self-concept is kind of the way that you see yourself, your self-identity, whereas self-esteem is more the way that you feel about yourself. And one study actually pointed to the fact that Though people did experience an increase in self-esteem post-surgery, they did not feel any increase in self-concept. They didn't take away from it, like, I feel good about me now. It was like, at least I look good. Yeah. Was kind of the takeaway. That makes a lot of sense. Right? So it didn't actually, like, long-term benefit their view of who they were and how they feel about themselves. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't like their identity was that like, I look this way. They wanted to look that way to like, just feel better about themselves. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. That well, makes they sense. thought that it would cross over, right? A lot of people have a self-concept of I am a fat person. Yeah. And let's say you are, and I quote, a fat person who undergoes liposuction. You could walk away from the surgery and say, I, I look better, but I'm still a fat person. As someone who struggled with weight as a kid, I think a lot of kids who struggle with weight when they were kids can probably say the same thing. Or a lot of people that struggle with weight when they were younger, you kind of still feel that way because absolutely a part of my identity when I formed throughout my adolescence was that my habits, my thoughts, all those things are related to me. I labeled myself as a fat kid. I labeled myself as unattractive. Mm -hmm. And this is like a very short story, but it's a funny one where I remember reading my MSN chat logs in grade nine when I was in grade 11, just looking through them. And I was like, Yo, girls were hitting me up and I would friend zone myself. Yeah. Because I was like, I'm just, I'm a fat kid. They just want to be friends with me because I'm the fat guy. And then I was like, yo, these girls were like, they were basically asking me to date. And I was mm -hmm. like, aha, let's be friends. What you were describing and what this study was pointing to was body dysmorphia. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you change the physical, if you don't change the internal, nothing sticks, nothing mm -hmm. works, right? I still hunched over and tried to like protect my quote unquote man boobs even when I had lost them because I did it for so many years. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm a shirt puller. He does it all the time. I always pull my shirt shirt, and I still do it out of habit because yeah. I did it for so long. But you don't body check as much, which is good. Yeah. I used to body check. I don't body check anymore, yeah. which is so nice. That, that's, a, that's really good. Yeah. This was also an interesting study. It was done in the United Kingdom and it analyzed 204 women to identify the factors that drive them to undergo cosmetic surgery. The questionnaires included questions about self-esteem, life satisfaction, self-rated physical attractiveness, religiosity, attitude towards cosmetic surgery, and media consumption. The researchers wanted to understand which factors influenced a person's likelihood of opting for cosmetic surgery. The results showed that religious beliefs and low self-esteem were the most predictive and significant predictors of the likelihood of undergoing cosmetic surgery. The findings showed that women who rated their self-esteem, life satisfaction, and attractiveness to be low, that also had few religious beliefs, and they had high media exposure, they were the most likely to undergo cosmetic surgery. That actually makes but a sense. But the women who still fell for all the other things, but they had a more significant connection to a religious identity, they were 
less likely because undergoing cosmetic surgery was going in contrast with their religious belief system. Yeah, I can see that. So the other thing I found interesting was, oh, I hate this so much, the prevalence of teenagers getting plastic surgery. Frankly, this is grim. I will start this by saying the average millennial takes over 25,000 selfies in his or her lifetime, which is astronomical and one of the major reasons for the self-esteem issues in this age group, because that has directly led to facial procedures increasing. I guess you're analyzing your facial structure Mm. a lot more. Of course. And you're seeing yourself more on video and you're on social media all the time and you're taking selfies. Of course, you're more likely to want to undergo cosmetic surgery. I didn't even thought about this stuff. Yeah. Oh, my God. 230,000 cosmetic procedures were performed on patients aged 13 to 19 in 2017. Out of the UK? Out of America. Oh, shit. Yeah. And more than 40% of surgeons in a recent American Academy of Facial Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery survey said that looking better in selfies on Instagram, Snapchat, and Facebook had become an incentive for patients of all ages in getting surgery. Just a lot of pictures of yourself. I know. So there was another study, actually, that I want to link to which was a systematic review on when plastic surgery in teenagers is okay. Basically, I found this interesting because they cite this influx in young people getting plastic surgery as being due to an increase of self-awareness and the desire to fit in with their peers. So what I'm really getting at is that there is an intense pressure nowadays because we live such pub like when i was growing up my mom who was very self-conscious of her appearance was afraid of like holiday season because she knew that that was when the camera would be pulled out oh yeah the camera's being pulled out every damn day now so of course people are a thousand times more self-conscious and seeing the influx of celebrities of famous beautiful people getting all of these and I quote just very subtle minor procedures makes it seem like not a big deal to the youth and conversely to us all remember the camera adds 10 pounds yes holy shit I forgot that was a thing yeah I mean pretty pretty fat phobic in and of itself but the times where I take selfies are actually insane we saw a comedian this weekend who was talking about how sometimes you're so invested in a crying fit that you're like (laughs) (laughs) that you're so hysterical that you can't even make it to the bathroom. And so you end up having a photo shoot of you crying just to see how bad you look. Yeah. And like the mascara just dripping down your face. That was a good bit. So I definitely have a full phone reel of just photos of me crying. I have a video of me crying. Because sometimes you're just, you're giving her. And I've only done this a few times in my life because I'm, I wish I cried more. But when I, there's one time I was ripping it and I was like, dude, I must look mad. And I just took a picture and I was like, yo, your boy is crying right now. Yeah, the last time I took a picture of me crying was because I had been crying for like 45 minutes. (laughs) And it just went on for so long that I was like, I've got to have done some damage to my face. Like, there's no way that I can even look human at this point. So I just wanted to see, like, was my face swollen? (laughs) How bad was the damage? You weighed yourself after? A 45-minute cry (laughs) is a long cry. (laughs) 
<laughs> I looked insane. Yeah. But Damn. yeah, so this all depressed me because of course, when I think about body trends and I think about the slim thick era, so many women underwent Brazilian butt lifts and spent a lot of money and risked their lives because yeah. that procedure, though today it can be done better, like I cited that the death rate on that procedure was one in 3,000, which is like the complication rate. Yeah. Um, because you're so vascular in that area, but now there is a safer way to do the procedure, allegedly I was reading, so. That's good. It's just that it was new and it's an intensely vascular area and it was like a precarious situation and people should not have been so cavalier with it. And now the Kardashians have dissolved their filler in their hips and buttocks region and thus I'm sure many women are feeling the blowback of permanently altering their bodies because of a trend we're not avatars and very rich and powerful people treat their body like avatars because they have the means to do so and that influence does trickle down to affecting because like a brazilian butt lift for the kardashians is like you and i buying a coffee and someone probably who was very highly influenced by them saved up and put a large chunk of money into it and risked their life and so maybe went into debt and risk their life. It's depressing, but it's also, it doesn't always have to be with this top conversation because knowing about diet culture and actively working on like fighting it within your own behaviors and with how you communicate about this stuff can be Mm -hmm. powerful. Like it doesn't have to be this way. The biggest thing to take away that I think is that within our current culture, which is slowly making changes and that's a good thing, Mm -hmm. left up to its own devices, it will push diet culture onto you because that's what's going to generate a lot of revenue in multiple ways, whether it's supplements, coaching, whether Mm -hmm. it's like gyms, whether it's cosmetic surgeries, media, those bodies that are sensationalized on social social media, the reason why the algorithms love them is because the hyper-sensationalized body gets a lot of attraction. It gets traffic, it gets clicks, and that's really all it is. And if you're aware of that, that can be helpful. And again, curate your feed, curate what you see. This is the first time in human history, I don't care what anyone says, that you can see this much visual stimulus in one day it's never been able to be that obtainable. And if you don't curate that you're on your own, it can really send you the most stimulative, hyper-sensationalized imagery that can just prey on your insecurities in order to maximize revenue for the companies that are buying that data to push it onto you. And imagine if there were trends in your personality. Like, would you change your personality every six months because somebody said that this new character trait was more in vogue? Like, who cares? When I was 18, I would. I would not. Like, <laughs> I was highly impressionable. That is insane. Yeah. It is insane to think that your body is something that is so highly modifiable that it should contort the same way fashion does to each new season. I know, it's sad. The fact that people are now starving themselves because of the Kardashians removing all of their filler and losing tons of weight makes me so enraged to yeah. see the impact that media has on women and the choices that they make when it comes to their bodies and themselves. Wow. We gonna get to that. Yeah. Because your boy's got a heavy segment coming up. I know. Yeah, this is the last one we're gonna be talking about today. It's a pretty heavy segment. It's one I'm quite passionate about too. We're gonna be talking about general weight stigma. And weight stigma is something that's been discussed by a lot of other people. I think it's still something that a lot of people don't fully appreciate or understand how common it is. It's pervasive whether 
when we were talking about during the pandemic and people were saying things like it's just affecting obese people, like then blaming them for that. Well, yeah, you know, they made those choices. So now they're at higher risk. Like that inherently is a weight stigma. But what I want to talk about is I read some research for this and I want to talk about this in a broader sense too, right? So we live in a more of a fat phobic society as we've discussed in the history of diet culture last podcast and throughout today. And that society demonizes fat folks and allows for discrimination to seem okay. And the biggest case in point is weight stigma. There's one review paper that I read called Obesity Stigma, Important Considerations for Public Health by Poole et al. in 2010. And it had a lot of insights into this topic. And in general, we can start with just discussing disease stigma in general. So that's where groups are blamed for problems and viewed as immoral, unclean, and lazy slash inferior, basically on their own doing for the diseases that they're contracting or interacting with. This extends to classism, racism, queerphobia, ableism, etc. Like stigmatizing disease is something as old as time, and it does relate to some of the topics we talked about in the last episode. I want to talk about a couple examples of disease stigma that are not related to obesity first, so you can get... kind of set the table for how violent and pervasive this has been throughout our history and how it marginalizes certain folks. One example that a lot of people might be familiar with was Irish immigrants in the 19th 19th century in America that were dying of cholera and other diseases were viewed as responsible for this because they were, quote, filthy and unmindful of public hygiene, end quote. And they deserve it because they were sinful and spiritually unworthy, which is kind of touching on Protestant discrimination against Irish Catholics. And, you know, religious persecution is something that quite old as time and transcends the Americas. It's kind of a worldwide thing. Another example, I mean, when it comes to black folks in the Americas, like there's a laundry list. This is just one, of course. So black Americans dying of tuberculosis in the start of the 20th century, rather than looking for treatment and prevention, some authorities actually issued warnings to their white citizens to not mingle with or hire black folks. Remarkably prevalent was the role that stigma played in HIV, in the HIV and AIDS epidemic. Uh, My sibling actually has done a lot of research in this area as well and and has informed me historically about this too, that it really did impact black, indigenous, and people of color more than their white counterparts. And then classism and ableism play a big role in this as well too. So this intersects with a lot of other kind of like historically marginalized groups. Researchers actually identified discrimination and stigma as a root cause for vulnerability to the disease. There's a ton of queer phobia in this topic, but you know, they're just not wearing protection. Queer folks are just animals. They're just having too much sex, et cetera. A lot of like sex shaming there, but it's not like rich white folks that were queer weren't having sex or people that were more protected. They obviously were, but the stigmatization of this really made people more vulnerable because they didn't have access to care. They didn't have access to contraception to the same degree. They didn't have access to the things that would help prevent spreading this disease. So this was seen in issues of drug addiction, such as today, where someone's an addict on the street and it's very pervasive to just blame them as if they're on the street because of a moral failing on their own. When it comes to this idea, obesity stigma thrives on the idea of the issues being an individual thing where our larger communities and the social policies and just political policies play no role in this. This is just, you're obese because you need to eat less and move more. But this idea hedges on a lot of assumptions that just aren't true, or it really reduces down obesity in a way that like, again, blames one person or blames any individual, but doesn't actually bring any helpful preventative measures to the table to change our future outcomes. So as I mentioned, this fat phobic assumption entails the following. In order to say that being obese is just an individual problem and it's solely at the individual's feet. So to do that, you do have to ignore the role that genetics play in body size. Like this is a huge component of this. You might eat the same as someone else and just 
gain more body fat. Even though you're eating the same amount of food, the same diet, et cetera, one person's gonna be generally more susceptible to weight gain than another. And I've talked about this before, right? So the idea of like metabolic phenotypes where some folks respond to overfeeding and underfeeding differently, right? So there was one study on twins that I've mentioned several times. And I think I've mentioned it because it's so, it's such a jarring result where people were overfed by 1,000 calories for 100 days, and one person gained 9 pounds and one person gained 30. That's not a discipline thing. That's not a willpower thing. That's just genetics. Like, it was just someone was had a luckier draw of defending weight gain better because these people were housed, so they couldn't, they weren't just exercising it off. This was defense against uh, weight gain when eating in a calorie surplus. You also have to ignore the role that the food environment plays, right? And our current food environment has an abundance of high energy dense and highly rewarding foods that are made the most accessible. And this tends to be the most true in lower income areas. And those areas tend to have uh, folks that are at higher risk of developing obesity. And there's a bunch of research in this area, but a couple ones that I wanted to highlight were that one by Fraser et al. in 2010, where the geography of fast food outlets, and this was a review paper in the UK that showed 14 out of 16 studies showing a positive relationship between lower income and higher fast food exposure. Having more fast food outlets in a condensed area does correlate with more consumption of fast food in that area. It's there for a reason. Proximity to home, school, work, and density in the area was what were labeled as food exposure. Ethnicity played a role with this as well, and with two U.S. studies showing a higher fast food density in predominantly black areas. So Lewis et al. in 2005 showed that in higher black areas in South L.A. had 25.6% of the restaurants being fast food, while only 11.2% of restaurants in the comparative area brackets less black residents were uh, were fast food restaurants. Another one was that by Quate et al. in 2009, and this showed a positive relationship between black population and fast food exposure in New York. Low income, less than 20 grand of median household income, and medium income, which is 20 to 50 uh, grand of median household income, black areas had a linear relationship with fast food exposure, while low income and medium income white areas showed no relationship. Once you were greater than 50 grand of $50,000 of medium household income, it did not have the same impact for either race group. So this is not always the case. Poor areas in general are targeted, but there is some evidence that when income is controlled for, black areas tend to have higher exposure than whites, even if they have the same relative median household incomes. That's gonna make a big impact on this too. So if I grew up in what would be called an area that's like a high density of fast food, and I've mentioned this before, I was exposed to it all the time. It was highly rewarding. It was just a normal thing to just go grab it because it was everywhere. And abundance and accessibility are two things that really drive human behavior. It's funny that companies will be like, it's just up to you. But the weird thing about that is like everybody knows accessibility is the big thing that changes human behavior. Whether it comes to like voting, if you make voting as accessible and easy to do, people tend to vote more. Historically, that's a little bit different now in some areas, but if fast food is in higher abundance in an area, people are going to tend to gravitate toward it, especially if they're overworked and they don't have time to cook whole meals and like purchasing power of a of McDonald's meals are a more efficient than going to the grocery store and getting a bunch of pro produce that gives you less energy content, right? That's going to be a thing that's going to drive lower income folks to kind of have to rely on it. So you're preying on that in a lot of ways. So on top of what I just mentioned, politics are a part of this and politics are something that people don't like to discuss. And I understand why it's very uncomfortable, but the role that neoliberal policies have played in shaping our current food environment cannot really be overlooked in this context. So 
That's kind of just reducing state influence on the economy, often by deregulation, privatization, and austerity, which is budget cuts, that have shaped the food environment and advertising exposure, especially to children. So you kind of get the government out of the free market, and the free market just does whatever it wants, and there's competition, et cetera, et cetera. But what that actually tends to do is, if you're a business person and you own a fast food chain, you're like, hey, you know, where am I, where am I gonna get the most bang for my buck? And it's gonna be if you just densely populate them in low-income areas. Those folks tend to be overworked. They might not have time to cook meals for their families. They might be working two jobs, single income, all of these things. And it's gonna be like, well, what's the easiest decision for them to make for their meals? If you go to the local fast food joint and they have like 99 cent burgers or dollar burgers, you can feed the family really quickly. And with relative high uh, purchasing power for that meal than opposed to like buying a bunch of Whole Foods and having to spend your entire night cooking that meal even though you just worked 12 hours. They're really preying on that. That's also one of the reasons why if you go into really high income areas, there's not nearly the exposure of these fast food joints. And secondly, I've mentioned this before. I was raised by a TV. And what I mean by that is I'd come home from school and I'd watch TV. Who do you think buys up the ad space on those children's TV commercials? I'll tell you, the amount of TV commercials I saw when I was a kid of like, Dunkaroos, McDonald's, Lay's chips, etc. They're buying up all that ad space. And before anyone starts like saying, what do you mean? This is just total infringement on freedom in the free market. We did this with smoking. Smoking companies cannot advertise in so many areas. The idea that we would do this in the food sector is like unheard of. But until we really start to get in the way of like, hey, let's not have our children who are most at risk of this, especially if you're a kid in a low-income area, you have the least amount of agency when it comes to your food decisions. Your parents have to make them for you. And if your parents, or maybe you're in a single-parent household, you don't have a lot of disposable income or time to make a lot of nutritious meals, these companies are preying on that. And they're like, oh my God, that's our best customer. And if we get them young, they're gonna be a reliable customer. That is a thing about this that cannot be, cannot be forgotten in the terms that like shaped the kind of increases in obesity. It's interesting to know what happened in China when they introduced American fast food into the environment. True. Because there was a remarkable increase in cardiovascular disease. Yeah. Where there really hadn't been one. Yeah, that's, uh, I remember hearing about that too. And again, that's like they weren't allowing, the Chinese government weren't allowing it. Yeah. And then kind of letting that slide because like, yo, there's a lot of money to be made in that. For sure. You can look at that in a sense and say like it's more of like the free market, but it's also, I don't know if that was a great idea. No. Yeah. Or if you do it, like you can, I'm not saying, I'm not going full like communist, like shut these restaurants down. But what I'm saying is we've given them free reign to just shape the food landscape however they see fit. Yeah. And I think people tend to think of it's like big government or versus freedom. Mm -hmm. But the way the world's set up right now, it's kind of big government versus big corporation. Like, it's not like if the government's not involved, everyone's just free to do whatever they want. It's pretty much, okay, if Trudeau ain't listening to you, Mark Zuckerberg is. It's also interesting to sort of see the difference in food trends since we were kids compared mm -hmm. to now, because I remember when Pizza Hut came out with stuffed crust. That was like, revolutionary oh, that was, I and now it. everything is stuffed everything mm -hmm. like our food environment has had to increase what were already hyper palatable foods to being like hyper palatable on steroids because they needed yeah. to make them more compelling and more exciting and they needed more of a pull because pizza is just not that exciting when it's everywhere and there are god knows how many places you can get a piece of pizza when you walk down a busy street but 
if we incentivize you by making it like insanely hyper palatable, it's yeah. going to be an explosion in your mouth of flavors. Yeah. Amazing. And then that's I'll all take you, 10. And how much exposure of that marketing and advertising are you seeing? It's every plastered on buses and streetcars and subways and down the street and on giant billboards and every magazine every time I watch a YouTube video like I don't think anybody ever really consciously recognizes no. just how exposed we are yeah to constant advertisement and I'll say this again people can be like oh you can make your own choices like I, I do believe in human agency but if it didn't work it wouldn't be at such a high price these two statements can can exist that like we're free to make our own choices so that advertisements can just run roughshod well if that's the case then why is advertising so expensive because it's clearly making massive impacts on how we make decisions and i don't think humans like to admit how impacted our agency is by what we're what we're exposed to these are things that are political these issues are not apolitical another thing you'll have to ignore is the role of living in a fat phobic culture while being fat it isn't an encouraging environment to then work on yourself and improve on yourself, whether that be you lose weight or not, in this current culture. Because this culture stigmatizes weight often, and stigmatization often is actually seen as a risk for weight gain. There's some research here that's kind of interesting. Um, Sam talked about this one a while ago. It's called The Ironic Effects of Weight Stigma by Major et al. in 2014. So women were exposed to a, quote, lose weight or lose your job article that stigmatized weight. And it had an ironic effect on resulting in the women with higher perceived weight actually eating more calories that were made available to them than those who didn't perceive themselves to be overweight. So essentially what they notice is the women who had higher perceptions of weight and read this article about stigmatizing weight out of anxiety, self-soothing, etc., they started eating more calories. I think it was M&Ms that were made available to them than the women who didn't have that. Because as I'm someone who self-soothes with food and if you st stigmatized me and were like, you made fun of me or you insulted me or you or you bullied me, harassed me, et cetera, for my weight. Well, what do people do when they're stressed? They tend to go to their coping mechanism. And for me, that tends to be food. So it's like, you can have an ironic effect of saying, Dylan, you're so fat, you gotta change, it's pathetic. I'd probably go home and cry and then eat something, which is what I did several times as a kid. So if someone soothes with food and has a history of it, stigmatizing from them, them for their weight is gonna have potentially an ironic effect of that. The one of the last things I wanna talk about is the role of the narrative in social attitudes. And this kind of touches on living in a fat phobic society and the stigma that comes from it. There was one study by Poole et al, a different study than the one of this review paper, but it was called The Impact of Perceived Consensus on Stereotypes About Obese People, colon, A New Approach for Reducing Bias. And this provided subjects with information emphasizing personal responsibility for obesity, increased negative stereotypes while providing subjects with information showing the complexities and often uncontrollable factors that impact obesity risk actually reduced stereotypes and improved attitudes. With that in mind, what has the narrative been around obesity? Personal responsibility, which is going to lend people to be like, okay, so if this is a personal responsibility issue, everyone who's obese just doesn't have personal responsibility. They're gluttonous, they're lazy, and that's not going to gather any empathy. That's not going to gather any support, which is what people who are trying to make lifestyle changes need. Even if they don't lose weight, they need social support. Instead, they get stigmatized. This is not an environment that encourages that. And we need to look at all of this all of, all of this lies on the underpinning uh, assumption that like this is just fat people's fault. And to do that is to overlook pretty much every point that I just made because obesity is very complicated and 
these ideas have thrived in diet culture because diet culture thrives on the fact that thinness equals more valuable, harder working, more self-control, which some of those narratives, even as I mentioned in the last episode, relate back to white supremacy days in the Americas. It's so interesting because obesity is something that we really have not handled well socially or culturally. No. And I saw it growing up in the 90s. My father was obese. He was also a smoker. And whenever he tried to quit smoking, per the encouragement of his doctors, they would say, eat candy instead. So he would eat candy to quit smoking, and then he'd gain weight. So it was actually more viable for him from a health perspective, according to his doctors, to continue smoking because the weight gain was impacting, what's it called? He was pre-diabetic, right? Yeah. So firstly, everyone made comments about my father size including my mom she would you witness that right oh all the all the time like mm-hmm. whenever she got mad at him she would make a derogatory comment about his size i remember as a kid actually like i loved my father and i was really proud of who he was as a person and i thought he was such a cool guy but none of my other friends had obese parents and because my mother always made comments about my father's size i became embarrassed of my father because he was so big yeah and that never sat well with me it bothered me so 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 much because i couldn't i was really young like i can remember having this feeling when i was like a little kid and didn't understand like the nuances of um social constructs and all of that and I remember being ashamed of his size and not knowing why. Like I can actually remember being so confused because I was like, this is a bad thing because everyone says it's a bad thing, but I don't know why it's a bad thing. How does it make him a worse father? How does it, like, why would that impact the way that I view him? But it was something that followed him around his whole adult life. Like people always made comments about his body and his size. I, I just... I see it from the perspective of the disability model too. Not only are people given legitimately no access to the resources or the help that they need. Yeah. Like my father never got the help he needed at all. He just probably, I bet he went to the doctor and like, you dude, you got to lose weight. Uh, Every time. What the fuck has that ever done? While he went through cancer, while he was on dialysis, lose weight. Like everything was lose weight, right? Obesity stigma is huge in the medical industry. Like doctors, like they'll just be like, yeah, lose weight. And just culturally, like when I think about accessibility and disability, I think about the fact that our environment isn't even set up for obese people to navigate confidently. Yeah. Think about airplanes. There is so much shame placed on the individual and so much responsibility placed on their shoulders. There's so much emotional weight that they have to carry because of our culture, because of the way that they're viewed and treated. It's abhorrent. Yeah. And it lacks any empathy on any level and the reality is 
most people listening to this, because I know our audience generally, they're like, why would this matter to me? Like, unless, you know, if you're not directly obese, why should you care? Because it literally is the basis of diet culture. It's mm -hmm. the basis, it's the foundation of why you feel the way you feel about yourself. Yeah. It is the basis of this entire conversation. It's fat phobia, and it's not something that we only turn outwards at others. You mm -hmm. might think to yourself, I would never shame somebody for being in a bigger body. I don't look at people like they have any less value in a bigger body. That's great. But what about if it were you? Yeah. Because I could bet on every level that you have internalized some fat phobia the same way I have, the same way Dylan has, 100%. the same way most people have. Because when you live in a culture that shames people for their size, it's hard not to then ingest that message and then inflict it on you. Fat phobia, like weight stigma and diet culture hold hands. Oh, for sure. Like they are holding hands. The phobia word is charged in a lot of ways. People are like, yeah. I'm not fat phobic. I don't judge people or I'm not this. Like when it's systemic, it's not like this overt thing where you're just violently going up to fat people in larger bodies and bullying them. When it comes to systemic things like Sam's example, I still struggle with this where it's like, yeah. if I gain weight, I'm, I feel shitty about myself. And part of that could be related to when I gain weight, I tend to be doing things like moving less, eating a lot more processed foods, etc. But a large part of it is in my own internalized fat phobia too. And I'm still working on it. And just because mm -hmm. I've read these papers and I, I'm, I care about this topic doesn't mean I have no internalized fat phobia. Just like I do identify as a feminist, that does not mean I have no internalized misogyny. I 1 million percent do. I have to own that because I yeah. was raised to be a misogynist in a misogynistic world, <laughs> yeah. but I still have to work on it. It's not an excuse for me to just be a misogynist, but I need to check myself. There would probably be subversive things that, that I would naturally do that would be kind of misogynistic and that doesn't make me a violently misogynistic person. Right. It's a systemic thing. It's like I accused, <laughs> I accused Dylan a little while ago of being ableist and i was being ableist he absolutely was i didn't even know i was being ableist until you described explained why and i was like oh shit that's yeah. ableism yeah i was being fucking hell oh, ableist the best part in living with a disability and one that is largely invisible because i don't have any physical metric to yeah you know what i mean like you when you look at me you don't see any visible disability, that doesn't mean I don't have one. And thus, sometimes when I look at myself and when I speak to myself, when I talk to myself, I realize that I too am quite ableist. Mm -hmm. I'm just as ableist as anyone. <laughs> like, I am so used to the privilege of having legs that can carry me and arms and hands that enable me to do things and eyes that can see and ears that can hear that I don't ever realize what the experience really is for someone else, yeah. right? And so you don't really fully acknowledge these things until you do, and then you can't unsee it. 100%. And the truth is, we've all internalized these things because our culture loves a meritocracy. We love the individualization. Everybody like, can go get it for themselves. We like to believe that we are all like capable of doing all the things all the time and it's just about willpower and determination and it's not yeah. sometimes there are things beyond our control when it comes to like losing weight and everything like that diet culture has kind of shaped fitness success as weight loss and Fuck yeah 
within that, say you're someone who would be classified as obese in a larger body and you're doing everything right. You're exercising, you're eating a lot of nutritious foods, you're getting your sleep. Scale hasn't moved. By this definition, you your fitness journey would have been a failure. But that's because of the definition is the problem of success. You've definitely improved your health. Yeah. Like exercise alone, it makes massive impacts on like risk for diabetes, overall health, like physical fitness, etc. You don't have to lose weight in order to be healthy. It might help. And like, there's a lot of data to point that like being at a certain body fat percentage and lower is probably gonna be associated with less risks. But it's not that like, if you're in a larger body, but you're doing everything right, you're fucked. In coaching so many people and in coaching myself, because of course I'm going to have conversations with me, Mm -hmm. one of the more interesting paths to figuring all of this out for me with clients and myself has been asking the question of, well, why do you want to work out? Why do you want to eat better? What's the purpose? Most people say for my health. Mm -hmm. And then my question is always, what does health look like to you? Because the way it looks tells me everything about the messaging you've received. And a lot of the time, we don't realize that we unconsciously associate lean, skinny bodies with six packs and big, full looking muscles. For a lot of women, that's not even the case. With being healthy. Yeah. I feel like that's a really great way to start because if you're associating a healthy body with a thin one, then you know that there's a mismatch right there for you to work on. Yeah. Thin and healthy are not synonymous, yeah. period, and stop. No, 100%. And that's what diet culture has done. And the impacts of it are pervasive as we've gone over a bunch of them. This was maybe the most research heavy episode we've ever done. And it'll be the longest one we've ever done. Yeah. But it just, it got in so deep and the impacts were all over the place in so many different areas. I've spent like six years now trying to actively undo diet culture. Yeah. Actually trying to find a way to distance myself from the viewing of myself from the outside and more of the experiencing life from on the inside. And it's interesting because I remember when I was a kid and I did that. I remember being a kid and having no concept of my body. I, it didn't matter how I looked. I yeah. didn't care. I just wanted to be comfortable and I wanted to run around and play and not think about it. Now I realize like the happiest I've been in the past six years are the times where, or I guess it's now, it's like I got to a place a few years ago where I realized that like my favorite body was whichever one I was currently inside of. Because Mm -hmm. we all kind of have a tendency to look back on old photos and go, oh my God, I wish I had her body as in you six years ago. (laughs) Or like, I didn't know how good I had it. I hear this from clients all the live long day. And I used to do that too. Like I would look at old pictures of my old body and be like, oh my God, either look at how fat I was or look at how thin I was look at my six pack look at this look at that and it's like who gives a shit the happiest I've ever been in my body is in the one I'm currently in the one that like I live with now the one that I experienced life through now it's a great body it's a happy body like I'm endlessly grateful for it and that's such a beautiful experience to sit with like to actually be present in the experience of living as you instead of 
living as somebody on the outside observing you at all times. Yeah. You are not this aerial view looking down at you and your body and your life. You are not an observer. You are the one having the experience. Mm -hmm. And that is the most fundamental shift life-changing yeah no i used to look at pictures of me shredded and be like dude i was killing it and now i see those pictures and i'm like i was so invested in how i felt i was obsessed um, with my body i same. loved waking up honestly this is the most i know shit. like a kid on christmas oh, I day wake up, i look in the mirror body. i'm like yo i look so lean this morning because best body is first body in the morning and now i look back yep. i'm like yo that kid was so sad oh my god same like yo that kid needed therapy but right? like I, I, that's a newer concept that I do but before I used to really look at those pictures and now I see them and they do make me sad because um, I also was like oh that poor kid thinks that happiness is being lean he I is, know is he ever him. in for a treat honestly I look back on pictures of me in my thinnest most shredded six pack days and I feel sad like I actively feel sad for who I was I feel sad that I woke up like it was Christmas morning every day it's really sad to look in the mirror the time, yeah. and weigh myself and if the number was good that day we were happy if the number had gone up, then it literally ruined my entire fucking day. And like the thought at the back of my mind all day was you need to move your body, you need to eat less. My whole day was a punishment for that way in that morning. Mm -hmm. I cannot stress enough what a miserable life that was to live. Like yeah. I have never been so unhappy. And this is a topic that many of my clients and I discuss because many of them have had like either eating disorders in the past or have experienced, you know, periods of their life with disordered eating. And the ones who have had full-blown eating disorders all end up saying to me at one point or another, having an eating disorder is a full-time job. It literally, oh, it, it consumes your entire life. It consumes every bandwidth of your brain every brain cell is literally devoted towards the pursuit of thinness controlling your food intake controlling your steps controlling your training controlling your sleep controlling every single thing on a spiral loop constantly over and over again all day long yeah no i that resonates hard and you don't even care to be social you don't care to be human anymore you just care about the pursuit of thinness. It is a miserable way to live. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. And that is kind of why we mm -hmm. wanted to do these episodes because mm -hmm. truly the impact of diet culture is, I'm gonna say it again, pervasive. Mm -hmm. It is in all of us. We have all been impacted by and touched by it in a myriad of ways. And until you ask yourself those questions, how will you know how you've been impacted? Yeah. Like if you don't ever dare to question it or poke at it, pull it apart and see how you got here or why it feels like your self-worth is tied to 10 pounds of body fat, you'll never know. 100%. This is a... Uh... We hope this has been like thought-provoking in a lot of ways. Yeah, that was kind of the biggest thing. And it's again, it's not to shame anyone to never pursue weight loss. No. We do not think it's inherently problematic. It's just for you to understand the driving thoughts and yeah. desires around it is really important i think for your long-term mental and physical health because again you might be someone who does everything right and you lose only two pounds you're like that was a waste i promise you it's not like you i promise you if you start exercising more taking better care of yourself but it doesn't result in huge weight loss that's not a problem yeah. that narrative is driven from diet culture a hundred percent and again if healthy to you is synonymous with thin that is a topic to explore 
Yeah. Right? There are plenty of people who do all the right things and who do not have that ultra thin six pack physique. Mm-hmm. We know them, we love them. And truthfully, one of the more important things that I had to grow to realize was like, people don't remember you for your size. People remember you for the way you made them feel. Yeah, That's the impact that you have on people. That's the impact that you leave people with. Well, when you were talking about kids, like kids are the best example. Yeah. Kids just have their big bellies out and they don't give a shit. That's what someone who's unimpacted by diet culture really looks like. That baby with the big belly out, I not know. even caring because th- that baby hasn't been conditioned to like be ashamed of that. Like three, four year olds with their big bellies it's, out. Like it's the cutest thing ever, but we haven't shamed them to feel horrible about that yet. Or at least hopefully not. It's funny because I know so many women are self-conscious about their bodies on the beach and yes there is more exposure because you're wearing a bikini but i also feel like that is the end result of seeing countless images of celebrities and models and women Mm -hmm. being exploited on the beach for their cellulite yeah things like that like oh look at the way she was sitting with her fat rolls and it's like you know what sitting on the beach in a bikini and just looking at my fat rolls and normalizing the fact that when I sit with a slouchy posture that I'm gonna have rolls on my stomach, life-changing. So stupid, so small, so seemingly insignificant, but getting used to seeing your body not in photo shoot mode. Getting used to just seeing your human textured skin. You know, my tiger stripes, i.e. my stretch marks. Love them, I couldn't care less. Mm -hmm. They are just signs of being human. Mm-hmm. And the more we normalize that stuff, the more comfortable we grow to feel with it. Big time. Whereas social media ju- is just perfection and perfect mm-hmm. images and perfect poses and perfect lighting. Yeah. So we have a lot to fight against. If you need any support when it comes to your health, your fitness, your mindset, these are the conversations we love to have. These are the problems we love to work on. We love helping our clients find power in their bodies, not because of the way they look, but because of the way that they feel. Mm-hmm. So should you need any help? via your coaching or you need a little extra support please feel free to check out our website in the show notes and please if you have any friends who have struggled with diet culture and all of its gnarly messaging throughout the years shoot them this pod i'm sure they would love to hear it it's Mm -hmm. nice to know just the sheer volume of people who are in the trenches with you and believe me there are countless more than you would ever know and beyond that we love you we appreciate you thank you for listening this has been great cheers